0: In our lesson this morning, we talked about the odd peace that Paul seems to have, the peace, the way he describes it, as a peace that surpasses comprehension. It's a peace that, if you were to look at his state when he writes the letter of Philippians, He talks about having this peace, he talks about being content, he talks over and over again about rejoicing and having joy, and yet if you look at his life, the circumstances would not ordinarily be what we would consider the peaceful, contented, and uh, joyful life. It, It seems like it's a life of hardship and struggle and suffering and persecution, a life where his freedoms and his plans and hopes have been removed from him. It seems like if anyone has a life where they can be frustrated or angry, it's him. If anyone has a life where they can be uh, anxious about what their future holds, it's him. He doesn't even know if he's going to be executed in prison. And in Philippians chapter 1, he talks about uh, he thinks that he'll be released, but you get the impression he doesn't know for certain. And yet through all of that, he seems to have peace. And that is a peace that surpasses comprehension. It's a peace that like something's going on there that is uh, more than just than just what the physical circumstances would lead you to think is going on. There's something deeper, and there's something spiritual. And so what we talked about this morning is some of the ways that he has learned to have that type of peace— even through all of these circumstances. And he's come to trust that no matter what circumstance comes his way, he can overcome it through Christ who strengthens him. I think that's the primary meaning of that passage. I can do all things through him that strengthens me. It's, it's not saying I can necessarily go out and, uh, you know, I'll, I can get any job I want through Christ, or I can overcome any illness through Christ, or I can be victorious over any. Uh, I think it's more the idea that even if I don't get that job, I can overcome and be content and be victorious through Jesus. Because I've changed my whole worldview about what matters most now. And through Jesus, nothing in this whole world, no difficulty, no hardship can come my way that can overcome and overpower uh, my mission and my faith. I can accomplish anything. I can overcome anything through Christ who strengthens me. And the way that I think he's come to have that faith is through doing some of the things that we've, we talked about earlier. We talked about uh, prayer being something that uh, immediately you go to when you begin to have those overwhelming feelings of anxiety. We talked about having a perspective that doesn't just focus on the problem or, the, or catastrophize the problem into a greater problem with your imagination or a, a mindset that forgets about the other things in life. There are still good things that you can remember and dwell on as well. And then we also talked about imitating Paul or practicing the actual, uh, the manner of life in which Paul lives. And Paul, I think when he talks about in chapter 4 and verse 9, when he says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you want the peace of God, it's helpful to have the God of peace. Uh, You know, he actually makes that switch in in chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. The way to have the peace of God is to have the God of peace. Uh, And so living a life where you grow closer to God uh, is is an essential part of this. But in verse 9, When he mentions the things that you have heard and seen in him, what we're going to talk about tonight is what some of those things are. We mentioned a few of them this morning that he mentions in Philippians, but we didn't really talk about chapter 3. And so what I wanted to do tonight is study Philippians chapter 3. Because Philippians chapter 3, I think, is a powerful and beautiful chapter that describes the transformation that took place in Paul's life from one that is fixated on all the things that might cause us anxiety, that might become uh, our primary focus in life, and how those things that once mattered so much to him now have become loss. He's lost them, but they've also become rubbish or or something that's, that's of no value to him anymore. And he finds value in other things. And the things that he finds value in cannot be taken away. And that transformation is so important because if your joy or your hope can only be satisfied through a job, jobs come and jobs go. As a matter of fact, all jobs go. Uh, You know, it's like eventually uh, if you only find hope through wealth, wealth comes and wealth goes. And guess what? When you find yourself at the end of your life, your wealth doesn't go with you. It's ultimately something that it could be nice to have while you have it, but it won't give you any lasting peace. And the same is true with any, uh, you know, temporal, momentary uh, pleasure that this life offers. It might offer that temporary uh, pleasure, but it won't give you something that will last. It won't give you something that helps you overcome the hardships of this life. I mean, if you have money, that's wonderful. What happens when you lose your money? Well, then that's a hardship, right? Then you don't have anything. If that's where you have put your hope, once that's gone, your hope is gone. And Paul is going to tell us how to put our hope in something that no matter what happens, you don't lose it. And to put your joy somewhere where even if you lose your money, you still have your joy. Even if you lose your job. Even if you lose the respect that people once had for you. Even if you lose your freedom. Even if you end up in prison you can still have your joy, you can still have your hope, you can still have your peace. And the only way you do that is by learning how to shape and re- uh, reshape your mind to where you focus on the things that truly matter and that transcend this life. And I think that's what Philippians chapter 3 uh, is all about. In fact, uh, just compare the verses in chapter 4 and verse 9, the one we read a second ago, where he says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. So he's saying, like, look at at the way that I've been living and you guys practice that and the mindset that I have, you'll be able to have. It will help you. But compare that with chapter 3 and verse 17 where he says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have seen in us. He's saying basically the same thing. He's giving people a pattern to live by. He's giving people an example that you can look at it, you can see it, you can learn from it, you can hear it, and you can then embody it and practice it yourself. And if you do so, you'll be able to attain a peace that passes understanding or a peace that transcends the hardships of this life. So we're going to go through Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, uh, make sure that you uh, turn there. And we're going to walk through this text together. Um, To start off, Philippians chapter 3, Paul does talk about rejoicing um, and how he is, uh, you know, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, To write the same thing is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. Uh, So when he says to write the same thing, I think he's talking about the things that he's already written in his letter, perhaps even that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, because if you were just to look at that phrase, you can see it at the end of chapter uh, 2, or at least the word rejoice. Uh, It's used in verse 28 where he says, Therefore, uh, I sent him, talking about Epaphroditus, "uh, all the more eagerly so that when you see him, you may rejoice and I uh, may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with great joy and hold men like him in high esteem. Uh, If you look at chapter 2 in verse 17 and 18. He says, uh, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Um, chapter 2 in verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Chapter 1 in verse 25, he says, convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, uh, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Uh, looking back at chapter 1, of verse 4, Verses 3 and 4, he says, I thank my God on every remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. If you just look at the word joy and rejoice, you'll see it pop up all the way through. In fact, if you keep reading, you'll see it pop up a few more times in chapter 4. So when he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He's already, he's said that over and over and over again. And he says, you know what? And I don't have a problem repeating it. Uh, there are some things that are important to hear more than once. Uh, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, like as a, as a preacher, you don't just want to preach the same lesson over and over again. But there are some things that are important to say uh, more than one time. And I think reminding uh, Christians who have every reason for joy through the Lord, uh, reminding us that to be joyful people is, is an important part of that. Yet, uh, verses two and three, he talks about some of those who seem to be uh, living and focusing in such a way that's going to steal your joy. Now, you, you can. There's a lot written on Philippians, and there's not a ton ri- uh, in the book of Philippians itself. There's not a ton written about who he's talking about here. So there's different theories about whether it's like Judaizers, like people who are trying to force circumcision on people or, or uh, people who are um, trying to make a name for themselves according to their genealogy or according to the law of Moses or something like that. Uh, if you read Galatians, you know that's a huge problem there. You see uh, some issues like that popping up in the book of Romans. Uh, you don't really see those issues much in Philippians, except really for these verses right here. But he mentions uh, this phrase, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who work in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there might be some, and I think this is this is what Paul was going to lead to Paul's next uh, next line of reasoning. There might be some who are trying to bolster their own reputation, their own egos, and just themselves Uh, in their credentials in Judaism, whether it is their uh, circumcision or their knowledge of of Torah or some some things like that 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 were symbols of pride. And we don't know, but if you read chapter 4 and verse 2, that he tells these two women to, to live in peace, to live in harmony in the Lord. And uh, so we know there was some division taking place. We don't know if maybe some of that division dealt with some of these types of issues, uh, or if maybe uh, if, you know, some people aligned themselves with the Odia and some people aligned themselves with Syntyche, maybe some of those people and their arguments started making arguments about uh, about maybe uh, how, how great they were in the flesh or their credentials in Judaism. Again, we, Paul doesn't go into great detail about what exactly is causing the issues, but he does have this phrase here where he tells them to beware of the false circumcision, the people who are doing the evil works. And so uh, what exactly is he talking about there? Well, I think whatever it is, we might get another glimpse of it here towards the end of chapter 3, you have people who are self-first in what they're doing. And perhaps they're even using the law of Moses, perhaps they're even using their own circumcision as another way of putting themselves first. And Paul is going to respond to this in a couple of ways. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to show how foolish it is to compare your worth as a person uh, to your resume, particularly your resume in Judaism, because if they're doing that to try to gain followers or something from the church at Philippi, Look, Paul can do it more than anyone. You know, Paul's actually a really impressive guy. Uh, and so to compare yourself to him is a losing battle. But what is Paul doing if he says, Oh, you think your resume is great? Look at mine. He's winning. But he's winning from the same mindset that is causing all of these problems. So then someone else is going to come around and say, Oh, yeah, Paul, you think you're impressive? Well, look at my resume. And as soon as we start doing that, it just causes more and more division. And it just causes. And so Paul begins to do that. And he shows that he has this great resume. But then he shows, and that resume means absolutely nothing now because I've found something greater in Christ. And if you call yourself a Christian, then that perhaps is a mindset you should adopt as well. These evil workers who were causing these problems, who were boasting in their circumcision, even if they had the greatest resume in the world, if they're going to be followers of Christ, they need to give up that sort of arrogance and pride and learn to focus on what truly matters most in life. And so that's where Paul's going to take us in in his reasoning. In verse 4, this is where he, uh, he starts to, to do his, his little boast in the flesh. He says in verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, look, i more so. I could have way more confidence in what I've accomplished in the flesh than you. Uh, verse 8, he starts giving some of the things. Uh, circumcised the eighth day. So not only was he circumcised, but he was circumcised according to the original teaching of the law of Moses, of the nation of Israel, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So those are kind of establishing his genealogical credibility, but from a child, from the eighth day, he's been observant of, of the law. He is from the nation of Israel, and he's act, he can actually go back to the tribe of, of Benjamin. Uh, if, if you remember his name, Saul, Saul. Uh, the tribe that the kings come from, you know, famously is the tribe of Judah. That's where Jesus came. But if you remember the first king uh, before David uh, of the United Monarchy, you had King Saul. And King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul likely is sharing the the name of the first king. He is sharing the name uh, probably intentionally sharing the name of that first great king. And so he can trace his genealogy back to the same uh, line as King Saul, his name come from King Saul. Uh, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. He has been observant of Torah since his earliest days. And then he goes on to say he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he's a Hebrew who came from Hebrews. Uh, you know, his parents were Hebrews and their parents before them, and he could trace all of that back. He then, in verse 5, as to the law a Pharisee. So he actually earned titles, and he was a respected teacher uh, because of his understanding and interpretations of the law. He doesn't quite go into it here, but in other texts, he mentions, uh, you know, he studied under Gamaliel. He was someone who was trained, and he had a prestigious education. You, that would be like saying, you know, I you know, look at my resume, and I can tell you, you know, wh- where I'm from, a prominent city. I'm from a prominent family. I've graduated from Harvard, and, like, you go on down the line, you're like, okay, this is This is a person of privilege. This is a person who uh, has, has, uh, had, has done well in life and he has, a, a, you know, a clear path to success before him. He says in verse 6, uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Um, so that right there, if you look at the word zeal, we often think of zeal as, as something like excitement. You know, like, uh, like you know, you're, you're just, this is something that we're all passionate about. We were zealous for it. Um, but if you look at the way Paul uses the word zeal, if you look at how he uses it in a lot of other passages, um, and if you look at the tradition of zeal in ancient Israel, zeal is what leads to zealots. Uh, zealots are zealous. Um, in fact, uh, the 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 whole tradition of, of z- being zealous in ancient Israel goes back to uh, the book of Numbers, Phineas, who ends up, uh, it, because of idolatry and some sinful acts, um, there is... Israel has been idolatrous, and one Israelite goes and takes a Moabite woman and brings her into his tent, and he's having a relationship with her, which he's not supposed to be, and uh, no one's doing anything to stop this, and he ends up getting a spear and going into the tent and killing them both. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a gruesome story but he becomes renowned for that story. And you see that the idea of being zealous for Israel often goes back to him. If you read uh, the books of Maccabees, uh, those are books in between the Old and New Testament. They're in uh, Catholic Bibles, uh, and they've often been read by Christians. But uh, if you read the history of the the Maccabean books, uh, you'll see that There is an uprising against the Greek overlords that leads to violence. And that violence against the Greek overlords uh, was led by Mattathias and then his sons. But what he says he's doing as he's leading that is he's acting in the tradition of Phineas. Like he goes back to them. And so being zealous was not just excited. It was, I'm willing to fight and to kill for my faith. I'm that excited about it, uh, you know, I'm that passionate about it, that it will actually lead to violence. And so when you look at uh, the, uh, the way zeal is used in, in Paul's writings, he'll often use the word zeal when he talks about himself being a persecutor of the church. Uh, he was more zealous than all of his contemporaries because he was uh, not only wanting to throw them in prison, he was wanting to kill Christians. What's interesting about that is Gamaliel Uh, seems to have a mindset that was not uh, of the zealous tradition. Uh, And so in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, uh, they're having a a Jewish council trying to discuss what to do with some of these Christians, and they're meeting, and some of them are thinking we should harm them or kill them, you know, punish them. And what he suggests is if what they're doing comes from God, then let's—we don't want to find ourselves, like, fighting against God. And if what they're doing is not from God, then it's not going to last— And so let's wait and see, and let's not act out in violence against them. So what's interesting about that is you have some traditions within Judaism that are willing to fight for their faith. That's the tradition of zeal in ancient Judaism. You have some that are not wanting to fight for the faith. Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, was saying, don't fight for it. Paul seems to have a very different attitude towards it than he does. He thinks, no, we ought to. We ought to have them beaten or stoned or thrown in prison. And so in in the tradition of zeal... Paul uh, was in like the height of the, uh, the Jewish uh, mindset of standing for the faith at whatever cost. And he could go back to the Maccabean revolt. He could go all the way back to the book of Numbers and he could find where he fits within this tradition and how he's carrying it on. And so he not only cared about the law, he knew the law, he lived the law, he fought for the law. That's what he's meaning when he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Like, no one had any credible accusation against Paul as someone who denied or didn't live up to Torah. Paul was someone whose reputation uh, uh, reputation was impeccable in the eyes of the people who knew him and saw him. So, he knew it, he lived it, he fought for it. That's a pretty impressive resume if you're trying to find your worth in your adherence to the law. So Paul says all of that. But then verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now when he looks at it, he's like, man, those things that once mattered so much. And you can imagine when you're studying and you're learning, and he's sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, and he's, he's first he's becoming, like, considered a Pharisee, and he's becoming someone who is, takes the law so seriously. Like, every step along the way was an accomplishment, was a, a moment for joy. It was something that you tell your parents about, and people are, like, it, all of these things, they mattered so much to him. And yet, now looking back, because of his experience of Jesus, he considers all of that loss. He considers it lost time, lost energy, lost effort. He could have been doing something that actually mattered with his life. Instead, he found himself putting so much into that. And you know what? When those are the types of things that drive you, that make, uh, that make your life worthwhile, then every one of those things becomes a new reason for anxiety. I mean, think about if you are—if you, if your education is the most important thing in the world to you, then you, you can tell what matters most by what, make, what, by what fills you with the most worry and anxiety. And so if it's your education, then that's just another reason for anxiety and worry. If it's your job, that's another reason for anxiety and worry. Why do we worry so much about our families? Because we love our families. It's like the things that you love the most are so often the things that fill you with the most anxiety and worry and stress— And so the more things that you have that are so important to you, the more you're filling your life with a reason for anxiety and worry and stress. And what Paul, I think, has done is ultimately simplified his life to the few things that really matter most. The few things that that true value can be found in no matter what else is happening— and it's not his accomplishments. It's not the things that make people look up to him and applaud and think, wow, you're such a great guy. Uh, it's Jesus and the hope that he has through Jesus. That's ultimately what matters more than anything else now. And, and I, I can't help but think for every one of us, if we, not that we care less, but if we grew to where... Fewer things were required to give us peace and happiness. That would be beneficial for everyone. And if you can get to where salvation alone is all you need for peace and joy and happiness in this life, then you would have more than enough. Uh, I love the way that Psalm 73 uh, concludes. You have this psalmist who's He's looking at the world around him and he's looking at all the success that people have and he's like, that person's not even a, he's a wicked person. And yet he has more than me. He has more money than me. He has better food than me. And here I am. I've tried to keep my heart pure and I have nothing. And it's causing him so much frustration. He says he almost turned against God. He's like, he almost, he says, have I had kept my heart pure in vain? Like, is it all worthless? But then he goes to the temple of God. He spends time considering uh, God, considering the people of God. And he ends up having this change of mindset where he says that the nearness of God is now my good. Like, that's the good that matters to me. And if I have the Lord, I have more than enough. And that type of attitude where the fewer things you need to have everything you need, the better. And I think that's what Paul is going to be describing here because he lost to those. He considered those things loss in verse 7. And in verse 8, he says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's like not only do I consider the, the things that I once cared about so much to be loss, I consider everything outside of Jesus to be loss. Now, that's, don't get me wrong, and I don't think, you know, don't get Paul wrong, you it, you got to have a job, you know. You got like, it, I, I, to. It's okay to have things you enjoy, uh, you know. It's okay to to work hard and try to accomplish things. But every every time you do that, you at least open up the door to the possibility that that thing can become an idol in your life. That thing can be something that deprives you of the peace that God intends for you to have, or it can get in the way of your walk with God. And that's where it immediately becomes. A problem. Uh, and so I, accomplish, live life, enjoy life, try to do good things, try to, but never let those types of things become the focus that steals your focus away from God. And so he says, I consider all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If there's one thing worth doing, it's knowing Jesus. He goes on to say, no, nah. Uh, In verse 8, I count them all loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So it's one thing to say, oh, I consider all those things loss. It's easy to say that. It's easy to say, oh, none of these things truly matter to me, as long as you still have them. Uh, It's easy to say, oh, my resume and the respect of men, those aren't the things that really matter. Paul says, I consider those things that loss but I've also lost all those things. He's in prison. He's considered a a fool by many. Uh, he, He has lost all of the things that made him unique and valuable in people's eyes. And yet he sees more value than he ever has in what he's doing because he has gained the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And so he considers them lost, he has lost them, and he considers them to be just garbage. He uses the word rubbish there. Uh, he considers them to be something that is um, grotesque, you know, something that, that he, he doesn't want anything to do with now because he's found something that, by comparison, is so much greater. As you go on in verse uh, 9, he'll go on to describe in more detail what all is a part of this surpassing value of knowing Christ? You'll know him in a couple of ways. Uh, Verse 8, he says, of knowing Christ. But then verse 9 says, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's what he tried to do. That's what those first couple verses were about. It says, but that which is through faith in Christ— The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So what he desires now is to know Christ and to have God's gift of righteousness given to him through his allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus. Verse 10 describes what it means to know him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So remember, Jesus was raised from the dead. If you really know Christ, then you will come to know the power of his resurrection. That's a pretty glorious thing. Uh, He says, uh, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, that one's remarkable because, like, everyone's going to like the idea of the power of the resurrection and knowing that. But he also says, and to share or to fellowship in his sufferings. Um, Paul is suffering right now. But rather than considering that to be the worst thing in the world, he considers that to be a unique fellowship with Jesus who suffered before him. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered immeasurably. Jesus suffered on the cross. And when we suffer, we're not just doing it, uh, you know, and Jesus happened to do it. We're doing it with Jesus in fellowship with him. We're knowing him through suffering. And so Paul wants to know God through the resurrection or know Christ through the resurrection. He wants to know Christ through suffering. And then he goes on in verse 10, he says, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So even if I die like Jesus, that's okay, because I'll know him, and I will attain the resurrection from the dead. And so what, is he, what has become his ultimate hope in life? It's not his resume that he once had. It's not all the things that so many people consider to be of so much value. What matters to him, he can have it even while in prison. Because what matters to him is knowing Christ, knowing his sufferings, and knowing the resurrection, attaining the resurrection. And those are things that nobody can take away from you. In fact, if they try to make you suffer for them, you're getting one of the things. Uh, If they kill you for it, you will attain uh, the resurrection. And so it's like they can't be taken away from you. And if that's where you find your peace, you're in a good spot because that can't be stolen from you. It transcends all of the things that this life uh, uses to steal your peace. And so Paul, having written all that, he recognizes in verse 12 that he's not there yet. There's still a journey to get there. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained it, or am already made perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. And so he says, you know, I'm not there yet. I still have journeys. I still have struggles. I still have all these things in the way, but I'm going to press on towards that central goal. The one thing that now matters above and beyond anything else, because I want to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Why did Christ lay hold of you? Why did Christ change your life? Why did Christ invite you into his kingdom? Why did Christ wash away your sins? It's, to live in fellowship with him forever and to enjoy him eternally. And that's what Christ wanted with you. And so you press on to enjoy that with Christ. And so that's what matters to Paul. And that's what he's going to press on towards the goal. So in verse 13, again, brethren, I do not my regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that's his resume. That's the stuff he talked about. The things that once mattered to him so much. I forget about that, and I reach forward to what lies ahead, which is his resurrection with Christ and his life with Christ and more knowledge of Christ and service to Christ. It's like the things that once mattered, I move from, and I strive towards the one thing that matters the most. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal and the prize and the upward call of God are found in Christ. That's what I want. So, verse 15, let us, and he's going to invite everyone into this now, let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or, or, or complete or mature, have this attitude, which, by the way, that word attitude right there, uh, some of your Bibles might have a different word than mine in verse 15. Mine says, have this attitude, and if anything, there is a different attitude, God will reveal that uh, to you also. That word attitude is a key word in Philippians. It's the same word that's used in uh, chapter 2 in verse Five that says, have this attitude or this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a mindset of selflessness, of not putting yourself first, but of putting Christ and others first. And he says, as many of us have this attitude, let's press on. Uh, In verse 16, he says, However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Uh, Brethren, join in following my example. Like the example he just gave us of having lost so much yet still having peace and still having a goal and still having passion for Christ. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. This is the mindset of the person who uh, they're still more concerned with themselves with how they look, with their own accomplishments, with what they can reach and attain, of what can make them better than others. Like that person, he says, even weeping, I tell you, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And one thing that's so interesting about that expression, enemies of the cross of Christ, is he doesn't say they're enemies of Christ. Uh, You know, I I don't know exactly who he's talking about here, but I, I wonder if these might be some of those Christians that he was mentioning earlier, uh, people who, who they might claim to love Jesus, uh, but they're still focused on themselves first. He doesn't say they're enemies of Christ or enemies of the church. They're enemies of the cross. In Paul's earlier description of the cross in chapter two is of Jesus who had equality with God, losing everything, becoming a slave, becoming a man, dying shamefully on a cross is the earlier time he uses that word. Uh, and doing that for others. The cross is the ultimate example of selflessness, of, of loss. And he says, I consider all things for, but loss. I have lost all things. So did Jesus. You know, Jesus, all of those things, he, he gave up to suffer and die on the cross. That's what they're an enemy of. It, it's the person who doesn't want to suffer. It's the person who doesn't want to give up their own goals and ambitions for others. It's the person who, chapter uh, 2 in verse 21, says, They all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. It's chapter 2 in verse uh, 3, which is the opposite of this, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. The person who still regards themselves as the most important. The person who seeks after their own interests rather than Christ. The person who uh, considers themselves great because of their circumcision or their resume in Judaism. The person who, uh, in verse 19 of chapter 3, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their mind or attitude on earthly things. That's that key word again when they set their mindset not on Jesus or one another or selflessness but on earthly things so that their God becomes their appetite, whatever they desire and crave becomes the most important thing to them, those are the people whose enemy is the cross itself. Um, That is not the posture of a Christian. The the Christian says, I would rather have the cross. Uh, I would rather carry my cross and live for Jesus than abandon the cross for earthly glory and riches and power. Like, give me the cross as the most important thing, and nothing else matters, even if the cross isn't good. Even if I end up in prison like Paul is, I would rather end up in prison for and with Jesus than in a mansion without him. Uh, That's the mindset that Paul has developed and is trying to get us to uh, develop as well. And he ends verses 20 and 21 with another reminder of that glorious resurrection that he's made reference to earlier. And talks about how we need to live not with this earth as our primary focus. Because, verse uh, 20, "...for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Now, the idea of having a citizenship that's in heaven is, is an interesting one. Uh, remember, Paul is a Roman citizen. Like, that's a, that's a, that's a big deal in Acts. Uh, but he lived in Tarsus, which is not Rome. He was a citizen of Rome, but he lived apart from Rome. Uh, he grew up in Jerusalem. And, like, he, he had these other uh, places that he lived, even though he was a citizen of Rome. And uh, the Philippi is a Roman colony. So it would have been full of Roman citizens, even though they didn't live in the city of Rome. So people were familiar with this idea of having a citizenship elsewhere, even though you lived in in a certain place. And Paul is using that language to say, as Christians, we're foreigners in this land and our citizenship is elsewhere. And as soon as you forget that and you start making your citizenship uh, about the, the earth right around you, if you start making that your primary focus, then you become like those in verse 19, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. Set your mind in heaven where you are a citizen of. And from which, verse 20, from heaven we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. Like our body with all of its weaknesses and frailties, our body that does suffer, our body that does go to prison, our body that might be nailed to a cross. Like the body that suffers that Paul has been talking about. He will transform the body from its humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he himself has subjected all things to himself. So when he says that in uh, chapter 3 in verse 10, that I want to know the power of the resurrection, that's the power that he's talking about. That can transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. If your hope is set on that, that cannot be taken from you. Death can't take it from you because your hope is set on the very victory over death that Jesus accomplished. And so the more we set our hope on Jesus, the more peace we have in this life. Uh, And I think that's how you end up being able to have a peace that passes understanding. Uh, And if there's anyone here tonight who's looking for that peace, uh, I can't necessarily offer it to you. Uh, But Jesus can, and God can, and he is offering it to you. If there's anyone who would like to become a Christian tonight, you could have your sins, which are so often the primary cause of our stress and anxiety in this life, you could have them washed away in the name of Jesus, and you can be born anew to live for him. You can know him, you can fellowship in his sufferings, but you can also know the power of the resurrection and attain such. If we can help you do that, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.